At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. We've all heard of the Clash of the Titans at the Gold Dome. All of a sudden, on the final day of this year's session, it was a clash with the Titans. As major companies like Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, and others blasted the state's new voting law after it had already been passed and signed. And that was just one of the surprising things that happened, or didn't, in the final hours. So let's spend this hour sorting through the debris in a special brunch edition of the Political Breakfast Podcast. We're coming to you live on 90.1 WABE Atlanta, also on our Facebook page, and of course, via the podcast feed whenever you want to listen. And however you're joining us, we're happy you're here. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Republican strategist Brian Robinson and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson are back. Welcome to you both, guys. Thank you. Good to be here. Great to have you. And it is also good to have WABE political reporter Emma Hurt with us. Uh, she has been covering the Gold Dome from beginning of the session to end, along with Emil Moffat, Christopher Alston, and others from the WABE News team. Emma, welcome to you. Thanks, Dennis. Glad to be here for brunch. Yeah, we are. Uh, are there mimosas? <laughs> <laughs> off, off camera, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we should point out that because Emma is traveling here, if you're watching on our Facebook page, you're seeing a picture of her. Um, Emma, let's start right in with the voting bill. After Delta Airlines CEO Ed Bastian blasted the new state voting law as unacceptable, the state house quickly passed a measure to end Delta's fuel sales tax credit that it's had off and on for years. But that retaliatory move did not pass the Senate. What exactly were the dynamics here? Yeah, you know, we started hearing rumblings of, of retaliation after Delta's really strong statement yesterday because it caught Republican lawmakers by surprise. They say the governor has said, the speaker said, and I've heard from others that Delta was regularly involved in the conversations as this law was being written and never had such strong um, opposition and, and worked with lawmakers on that bill. And then all of a sudden this statement comes out and, and politicians were like, wait a minute. I thought we, I thought we talked about this guys. Um, and, and so I heard mixed things. Is this going to happen? Is it not? And it turns out, you know, it was both the house took up this measure. You're right. And it was a very last minute amendment. Um, state representative Sam Watson was reading his, his bill about related to tax credits. 
and listing the changes. And at the end, he goes, oh, and on July 1st, we're going to start collecting jet fuel taxes in Georgia. And I yield the well. Thank you. <laughs> and they had to vote immediately. And, um, you know, a Democrat called it out as retaliation right there. But the Senate did not go for this this measure ultimately in time. It's still alive for next year, I'll say. But it was it was, you know, I felt like I was watching like a family squabble. And I feel like you all can speak to this better in terms of the history of Delta's relationship with the Gold Dome. But there was really this sense of betrayal. I mean, Speaker Ralston said, I mean, they like our policies when it benefits them. And then they come out and say this, you know, they should know better. Don't, uh, you know, don't feed the dog that bites your hand was his explanation of why they would do this or, or try to do this. I'm sure Ed Bastian is happy with that analogy. But um, Theron, let me bring you into this. And Emma uh, and Brian, uh, feel free to add as well. We heard that Ed Bastian issued that statement after meetings with African-American community and political leaders. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, Ed Bastian has been one Dennis, that has been very outspoken since he's become the cap. I'm sorry, the Delta CEO. I'm so used to saying the cap county CEO, Michael Thurman. <laughs> um, so sorry about that, Ed. But I, I think what was interesting is that Delta really realized that they needed to really do some more soul searching and really talk to more people. And so, yes, there were some um, meetings that were had. I do know that Congresswoman Nakima Williams posted that she had had conversations with Delta. Um, the majority of the airport is in her district. The other part is in, in Clayton County. And so I think that they had to make sure that they listened to everyone and to get all sides. But I just want to commend the Delta CEO for coming out, speaking strongly against this bill. And he used the term unacceptable. Uh, he said it was based on a lie. And so I think that those are the things, Dennis, that I've been saying on this podcast for weeks, that there was a false narrative. And I also said, and I'll you know, uh, give a little time to Brian, for weeks that more corporations were going to speak up, more corporations mm -hmm. were feeling the pressure. And a lot of people listened to the podcast. They said, well, what, who are these corporations? Where are they coming from? There, how do you know? Well, you're starting to see Microsoft, Coca-Cola, Delta. And I believe, Dennis, you will see more and more as we begin this sort of legal challenge uh, to try to really uh, figure out this confusion with this new voting law. And Brian, you and Theron and I will get into this more once we finish this recap with Emma. But very quickly, uh, just some initial thoughts on what the dynamics were on that final day with the corporations, particularly Delta. Well, everybody was at the table before the final day. They were at the day. They were at the table talking about the bill, and many Democrats, you know, and even you know, Theron said on the on the podcast a few weeks ago when this passed, you know, the bill got to a good place. And, you know, over time, this national media narrative began to take over. And it's one that went from a fact-based debate to a fact-free debate. And now Governor Kemp is out there courageously trying to tell the truth about what this does. And I I am flabbergasted. I have never seen uh, anything quite like this before, where, you know, in these statements yesterday coming out against the, the, the new law, it's already been signed, no one could really point to anything to back up these wild assertions because there's nothing in the bill that restricts voting. And we will get into that a little more in just a couple of minutes. But Emma, to come back to you, uh, there were a couple of things that also did not happen in addition to getting rid of the fuel sales tax credit for Delta. The gun rights bill 
did not pass. House Speaker David Ralston has some had some thoughts about the dynamics behind that, too. But real quickly, tell us what that bill would have done and then tell us what the speaker said about what happened to it. Right. It was a bill that would um, establish reciprocity between um, gun license for gun license holders in other states to come in and carry legally in Georgia. And it was scheduled, you know, it just needed one final stamp of approval. But Speaker Ralston, he said they ran out of time. But he also said, you know, I'm very aware that we're just a couple weeks out from the horrible mass, the horrible shootings that we we saw here in Atlanta and, and elsewhere recently. And that we want to be really careful about this kind of thing in that climate. And, you know, he said, I think this house is on uh, very much on the record as being supportive of gun rights. But that this measure, you know, the optics to him seems like it seems like that that held up this bill's final passage this year. So in other words, he's not ruling out that it could come back next year when, to use that often used word, the optics are different. Was that really <laughs> the problem rather than anything else? That's what he said. That's what he said. He said, there's definitely more time. Um, you know, we can, we can take it back up. It's a two-year session, so nothing is dead yet. Sports betting didn't make it either. What happened there? Right. It's like the ongoing saga. Are they going to do it? Are they not going to do it? Do they have the votes? Do they not have the votes? Because it's not a, it wasn't a straight partisan issue. Right. There were some Republicans that didn't like it. Some Democrats that didn't like it. And so, um, you know, people pushing a bill needed to, to round up votes from both sides. It seems like while it was scheduled for a vote, the the bill version as opposed to the constitutional amendment version, which is a nuance that. Anyway, we can get into all of that. But um, th there was some pushback from Democrats, I think, after the voting law, some withholding of votes as a result of that. And, and they couldn't seem to get the votes in time. But Speaker Ralston again said, you know, it can still come back um, and and uh, we'll still come back to the table on that probably in the future. And Theron, you've talked about uh, some of the trading, I guess you would say, or lockdown by Democrats on the sports betting bill because of the voting bill. Um, back to the corporate community, there was some push behind the online sports betting bill, especially from Atlanta's major league sports teams. So as Emma was saying, do you think this is just going to come back next year when things are a little quieter? Maybe. <laughs> it is. It is going to come back. And I said on our last podcast, Dennis, that all the sports teams should hire Brian and I. And I don't know if Brian does much lobbying these days. I know he hangs around the Capitol a lot. I, I, <laughs> uh, he's safer. But uh, this was one that I thought that definitely could have gone into the session, received a lot of bipartisan support. Unfortunately, the Democratic caucus, who I've been saying for weeks, uh, learned how to be a really good minority caucus, really locked down and said, hey, if you guys want to pass voter restriction bills, then we're not going to, you know, necessarily just lay down and vote for a sports betting. We're going to put pressure on these sports teams to really know where they are on this particular issue. And so they have learned how to be a good minority caucus to negotiate for things that they want to see passed. And one quick clarification what my good friend Brian said last time. I didn't say that the voting bill got to a good place. I said it was terrible and it was better than it was, but it's still a very bad deal. So I want to make sure of clarification for all my fans out there that I'm not going to let Brian twist my words on this podcast. Play the Brian, tape. Play Brian the tape. real quickly. Play the tape. Oh, okay. Um, we have just a few minutes left with Emma Hurt here. Emma, let's look ahead for a minute. Lawmakers, as we mentioned, are going to be back again, not just next year, but they're going to be back in the fall 
for the dreaded redistricting session to draw new lines for legislative and congressional districts. This is a once in a decade exercise and it loomed over this session. So how do you think after watching it the whole time that the two parties played their hands as Theron was referring to as they dealt with each other over major bills in a changing state? You know, I was just kind of reflecting on how this session began with House Speaker David Ralston appointing a Democrat to a committee chairmanship, which was unprecedented, as I understand it. And, you know, and then this gun rights bill did not pass the the General Assembly today. And while there's been much pushback on this voting law from Democrats and activists, you know, Republicans who wrote it feel like it's a compromise, that they're, the far right wing is not happy with it and Democrats are not happy with it, that they compromised and found some middle ground. And so that dynamic, I think, has been at play in the General Assembly more than I've seen before um, after Democratic wins in 2020. However, that being said, you know, in my conversation with Governor Brian Kemp this week, he said, ultimately, you know, Democrats keep saying elections have consequences and they do. And Republicans are still in control of the General Assembly. And so, you know, absolutely not a not a um, shirking of their power by any means. But but I, I've I felt that competitive, the, the state's competitive nature there also related to what Theron said about how the minority party is trying to to um, to have some sway in a different way. But I mean, I'm this is my first redistricting session coming up this fall. And so I'm really curious what what you all think, and Dennis in particular, what you think about how these dynamics will affect that, since it seems like quite an intense horse trading dynamic that we're going to see. Well, I'll just go really quickly and then want to make sure that Theron and Brian have a chance to talk to you about it. But uh, certainly the Republicans are going to feel an imperative, especially since they have now lost a presidential race and two statewide Senate races. The imperative is maintain those majorities in the legislature, if at all possible, secondarily try to maintain a majority in the congressional delegation from Georgia. But that legislative majority is, I think, where they'll focus the most. And then the dynamic that goes with that is that of individual lawmakers for self-preservation. I was told by one uh, former lawmaker who uh, was drawn out of his district and into a primary with one of his colleagues uh, that he lost, he said, when it comes to redistricting, you have no friends. <laughs> Brian, I'll start with you and uh, your thoughts on on uh, redistricting and what Emma was saying. Yeah, the, uh, the, there is going to be a lot of pressure on, on Republicans here. It's going to be very little time before the primaries begin next uh, next spring before qualifying next spring, which will probably be in March of 2022, uh, what the shortest time period we will have ever had, really. So, but Republicans are going to face some challenges. There's going to be a significant movement north. So the districts in the south part of the state will get bigger because of population decline or stasis. And districts in the metro Atlanta area and other parts of North Georgia are going to shrink as far as ge geography. And as they shrink, you know, you're getting into uh, hubs of Democrats, or heavily Democratic areas where uh, there's nothing you can do but draw Democrat districts. So there's no way for Republicans to run the table here as far as 
drawing districts that will not only elect a Republican General Assembly in 2022, but through the rest of the decade, which is always what you really want to do, uh, it's going to be extremely difficult on the congressional side. Uh, we one of the easiest things to do to get rid of a Democrat, because the second district down in southwest Georgia, that is Sanford Bishop's district. He's a Democrat and a, one of the most uh, high ranking in seniority that we have in the delegation. His district is going to need to grow probably 75, 80,000 people. And so it, you could very easily draw that up into northern counties or, or go uh, east and make that a Republican district. But then you get into the tricky scenario of taking out an African-American Democrat, which raises the eyebrows of the Department of Justice. So there are some tricky elements going into this, but Republicans should be able to draw districts that maintain majorities in the General Assembly for the next couple of cycles, at least, and look for them to try to draw either the congressional sixth or seventh districts into somehow a Republican district, both represented by Democrats now. The sixth is North DeKalb, North Fulton, East Cobb, and the seventh is uh Northwest Gwinnett and Southeast Forsyth, one of those Republicans will try to take back and the other one will become heavily Democrat. Okay. Theron, real quickly before we let Emma go. Yeah, I think Brian did a really good job of sort of um, giving our viewers and listeners a sort of snapshot of what's to come. Um, one of the things I wanted to say is that, you know, uh, the legislation, the legislature is over. You know, many of us were there uh, last night, you know, until one or two o'clock in the morning uh, this morning. And so now the legal battle begins. But it's not just trying to really push back and get an injunction on, on Senate Bill 202. It's also then it's getting ready to just really see if there is some common ground around reelection. I'm sorry, uh, redistricting reform, uh, which I think that, you know, Speaker Rawson had hinted early on that that was something that he was open to. Just not sure after this very tribal and combative session um, if there would be any room for true reform and true um, bipartisanship to draw some lines that are fair for all legislators. Right. WABE's Emma Hurt has been with us these last few moments. Thank you very much, Emma, for being with us. We really appreciate it and uh, appreciate all the work that you and all of your colleagues have done this session this year. Thanks for having me, y'all. Emma, let's do, let's do some mimosas soon, Emma. On, on Brian. Oh, yeah. He's got a lot of money. Absolutely. Yeah, has <laughs> Thanks so much. Bye, y'all. And we should point out here that uh, next Wednesday, uh, six days from today, we will have another live special edition of the Political Breakfast. Theron, Brian, and I will be back on 90.1 WABE and on our Facebook page. That'll be at same time, 10 o'clock, just on Wednesday next week instead of Thursday as we are today. All right, let's get back to the voting bill, gentlemen. Um, Theron, you had predicted, as you mentioned, there would be more corporate pushback on this bill. But the criticism from progressives has been this doesn't mean anything since the law had been passed and signed by the governor. And as Brian pointed out, the corporations were in on the discussion. They knew what was in the bill. Well, they, they did. And and the thing is, you know, to be fully disclosed, I do represent uh, Microsoft and I'll just kind of focus on them. And so, you know, if you go back to this, Dennis, Microsoft is getting ready to bring, you know, tens of thousands, if not up to 20,000 jobs to the west side of Atlanta. And so the president, Brad Smith, did tweet out early 
before the bill was signed that he had some concerns about it, that he wanted to make sure that everyone had fair uh, and proper access to, to voting. You know, we want to expand voting, not decrease access to voting. And so what you saw is then, and I, and I want to push back on Brian just a little bit, he should definitely read the report from Brad Smith and Microsoft. He went line item by line item, particularly focusing on the provisional, provisional ballots, uh, where now, Dennis, if someone accidentally, for whatever reason, goes to the wrong precinct, they will not be able to vote in a provisional way. He talked about how this bill restricts and decreases the amount of, of access to absentee uh, ballots. And then he also uh, talked about a lot of other things that you know detailed in the report. So I do think there is fair criticism from the left to say, hey, corporations, you guys didn't speak out before the bill was signed. We were encouraging you to speak out more. But there were some that did. And then also we got to be very careful, Dennis, um, as Democrats to you know make sure that we, we hold these uh, corporations accountable. We should continue to meet with them, find middle ground. But also we got to be a little patient because now we're about to embark upon a legal process that is going to take months to really figure out you know, the legal pathway for Democrats and others who are speaking out against this bill to really see if there are things that, that we can sort of get in an injunction and take out of the law. And so it's really just funny to me, the only people that are actually defending Senate Bill 202 are Republicans. Three lawsuits, three federal lawsuits have already been filed. And real quickly before we get to Brian, so the bottom line question for you, Theron, is the so what? I mean, the, the companies have weighed in, Progressives are saying they were too late. Does this does their opposition in practical terms translate to anything other than PR? The majority of progressives, Dennis, are saying thank you. They're saying thank you, Delta. Thank you, Coca-Cola. Thank you, Microsoft. You know, now there are some that saying, hey, we would have wished we wish you would have weighed in sooner. But the corporate pressure will definitely have an impact on the legal proceedings. And I definitely think, Dennis, it will have a tremendous political impact because one thing that Republicans pride themselves off of in Georgia is being the number one state to do business. Well, you can't do that and continue to be the number one state to do business when you have corporations, Fortune 500 companies that are concerned about this voter bill that is restricting access to voting. And so I definitely think that the corporate community will continue to meet with folks and they will continue to watch how this plays out. And Brian, you've said that, uh, and the governor is pretty much said in so many words, these folks just didn't read the bill right. Are, is, are you taking issue with what Theron said about some of the provisions in it? Well, I don't want to take issue with what Theron is saying, because Theron is speaking calmly and not saying outrageous things. And I want to thank him for that. I think he is he is telling the facts as they are. And I'm going to try my best as I discuss this issue, which is so emotional and has been overtaken by emotion in my best NPR voice. My my mom and my dad, my wife, they all say that when I get to talking about voting issues, I tend to lose my temper and that really comes across and hurts my message. So with that in mind, I think that Bastion's comments yesterday tell us a lot. He says, the movement to change the law was based on a lie that the elections were stolen in 2020. Now, as our listeners know, I agree with Ed Bastian that our elections were not stolen. But that was kind of where I, I end my agreement with his statement. As the governor said in his statement, all of these corporations were at the table. They saw tremendous changes take place. And that is credit to Speaker Ralston, to Jeff Duncan, uh, Lieutenant Governor, and Governor Brian Kemp. 
the no excuse absentee ballot, getting rid of that, which was in the earlier proposals. Now, that is something that the left would have a legitimate gripe about. That was taken out. And as you know, I all along said, I don't think that's going to stand because it wouldn't stand up in court. It's going to create a backlash. I think you're going to see a much more modest package at the end. That's exactly what happened. And so what's occurring now, what you're watching happen in real time, is that the people at the table know the bill's not that bad, that that much of what is being said about it in the national media isn't true. It's not based on facts, as Kemp keeps saying. But they can't fight a battle on the facts, so they gave up. And so they're like, yeah, you're right, this is unacceptable. And that's what we're seeing un- unfold right now. This will not restrict access to voting. Turnout in 2022 will be uh, higher than any midterm we've ever seen before. And 10 years ago, when we did the voter ID for in-person voting, Democrats and the left said this would suppress votes. Turnout has exploded ever since that time. And to put this racist label on what happened in the General Assembly, let's look at the context. This is the same General Assembly that last year passed a hate crimes law in the summer. This is the same General Assembly that this year did away with citizens' arrest. These are not people who are taking us back to Jim Crow 2.0, Jim Crow in a suit and tie, or Jim Crow on steroids, or as Biden has also said, Jim Eagle, which is just absolutely bizarre. To compare this to that horrible time in our history where there were extrajudicial killings, when black people had to guess how many jelly beans were in the jar to register to vote, is outrageous. And it diminishes the horrors of our history by Brian, doing it. Let, before we get to Theron, let me just bring up something that you mentioned, because you said this does not suppress access to the ballot. One of the concerns one of the biggest concerns raised by critics of the bill isn't about access to the ballot. It's about the process of what happens afterward. There's the provision in the bill that strips the secretary of state of his or her place as chair of the state elections board. It gives that job to someone appointed by the state house and Senate, and it gives the board and the legislature increased power to take over local elections offices that are underperforming. And of course that's, definitions kind of left up to the elections board. And we talked about this in a previous podcast, but Brian, again, we've heard the governor and other Republican leaders say critics of the law just don't understand it, but explain to me how this law, that provision of the law, would not give the legislature the power to do exactly what Donald Trump wanted it to do last year, overthrow the state's presidential election results based, as you have said, on a false narrative. Well, let me start off by saying that I disagree with the portion of the law that removes the Secretary of State from the uh, State Elections Board. It's short-sighted. It is uh, is sort of a reaction to the base being mad at Raffensperger over stuff that's not true. And I, I disagree with that portion of it. When it comes to giving the state authority to take over election boards that aren't functioning, the irony that I just can't wrap my head around here is why anybody on the Democrat side would be against this. What they are saying is if county incompetence, such as last year, not sending out absentee ballots for the entire primary, which we saw in Fulton County, or lines that are two, three, four hours long in 90 degree heat, 
what the Republicans are saying, what the General Assembly is saying, let us go in there and fix that so that we can improve access to voting. Let's stop the indirect, not intentional, but real voter suppression that is happening. Four-hour lines do suppress voting. Not sending in absentees does suppress voting. So I think this is something that actually increases access to voting. It is to fix problems, not to take over Democrat boards just for the fun of it. Theron. I do want to commend Brian for for publicly saying that that is a bad portion of the bill. That is a very, very bad um, you know language that basically also Dennis takes away local control. I always tease Brian, you know, the Republican Party that he came up in when we both worked on Capitol Hill was a party that actually always supported uh, local control. They, they never supported unfunded mandates. And this is basically a lot what this bill is doing, not only taking away local control, but putting forth unfunded mandates. But I think the, the systematic problem, the systemic problem with that provision of the law is that is what Brian said. This is a way to punish a secretary of state who has received praise on both sides from Republicans and Democrats for standing up to a bully, a bully and former President Donald Trump, who tried to overturn election results. That is the fundamental opposition of democracy. And another thing I want to say really quickly, Dennis, is that I think that the other thing that was also pointed out was the issue with the drop boxes. And while Brian is going to say that wasn't in the state law, he's right. It was a special provision that was put in because of COVID-19 and the deadly pandemic. He's right. But there was no voter irregularities. There was no evidence that the drop boxes did not work. And so one of the things that we'll also point out is that we should not restrict and reduce the access to the drop boxes because people in the disabled community really depend on those drop boxes. People who work um, may not always have the time to get there doing business hours. And so I think that was just another flaw in this voter uh, in this voter bill. And, um, and, and can I add there? Sure. Thank you, Theron, because I, I think that Theron's making a, a legitimate factual factual point here on the drop boxes. Now, now I think we can have a legitimate debate on it about whether or not the drop boxes should be inside and that, that makes them more, more secure or if they should be outside so that there's 24 seven access to uh, those boxes. Uh, as uh, someone who's been on a show with Theron said recently, everybody has a drop box in their front yard. It costs 50 cents to, to put the, the ballot in there. But I think that's a legitimate point that we can disagree on. But you say that's Jim Crow 2.0? No, no, it's not. And and that and that's kind of where that's where I get my my emotions up is to use that sort of language is so hurtful to Georgia to our reputation, and it's not true. That's what really boils my blood. Real quickly, I'm going to get back to just sort of the bottom line question here. And Theron, I'll start with you, and as briefly as you can, as you look at this bill, that provision about the state elections board and the secretary of state and the legislature's involvement. Do you think that if this provision had been in effect in 2020 last year, that the legislature would have had the power to do what governor Kemp said at the time it didn't overturn the election result? I mean, maybe, but, but the one thing I think we got to really point out here, Dennis, and I want to say something really quickly, 10 seconds is that I think Brian, the problem with the, the, the Jim Crow, Um, references is that you understand this is that for the African-American community, voting rights is very emotional to us. It was something that we worked, you know, uh, you know, hundreds of years to try to get access to. And so I think we cannot leave out the the, the systemic sort of emotional point of this. But but Dennis, I, I think that what I would say is that why don't we flip it? 
Why don't the Secretary of State's office invest more resources, more time to work with the local county elections offices to make sure that we don't have those problems? Brian is right. We know that there's probably about six to eight counties in Georgia that have consistently had problems. Let's spend our time and resources of building relationships, finding out what happened, rather than basically trying to take away their ability to run elections and, and strip a constitutional elected officer like the Secretary of State away from his duties to uh, administer statewide elections. You know, the, the irony of the Democrats' viewpoint on that is this. They don't like the state going in to fix problems on the local level on voting because that's taking away local control. At the same time, they are working on H.R. 1 in Washington, which would allow the federal government to take over state authority on voting. So they don't really have a, a principled argument here. Very quickly then, uh, and we'll take a break right after this. Um, starting with you, Theron, back to the corporations and to what Brian just referred to, the battle in Washington over federal voting rights legislation. Will companies like Delta and Coca-Cola and Microsoft and others here in Atlanta now push Congress for federal voting rights legislation? Absolutely. And I think, you know, what I said on uh, Emma Hurt, who did a wonderful piece this week and she interviewed me, is that I think what you see in Georgia uh, with these voter restriction bills and other states is awakening a sleeping, you know, sort of growing giant and people who are going to vote for the Democrats who traditionally go to sleep and don't vote in midterm elections. And so now the attention turns to the federal government. And so we've got to pass the, the bills. The, you know, we need to pass the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act, Bill HR1, all of these things that you'll start seeing these corporations uh, weigh in on. And lastly, Dennis, you'll see the president of the United States, who I'm proud that can legitimately speak up and speak out for, um, you know, for voting rights. You'll see him and continue to inject his influence and himself in this process. And so definitely, while we still fight this battle legally in Georgia with SB202, you'll definitely see a huge shift towards the federal uh, bills that are on the table right now. Brian, companies and Congress? Yeah, um, I'm sure they'll put out their statements and maybe even their lobbyists will be tasked with uh, going to their state delegations in support of it. I, you know, and I, I don't want to focus on Georgia corporate businesses because, uh, you know, these are proud hometown institutions for all of us. I mean, all of us, you know, if, have, if we have a choice, we're going to choose Delta over anybody else. We're going to choose Coke over anybody else. We're going to choose Home Depot over Lowe's, whatever. We do feel that affinity. Um, I would encourage more corporations to go more the route of, uh, of Chick-fil-A and just sort of stay out of politics. Uh, and I... I understand that there's uh, a demand from some em the employee bases, maybe some customer bases, but uh, there's also a lot of customers and employees who uh, who have different views. And uh, you know, I think the concern that you're going to see create a backlash is that when corporations around the country, not just in Georgia, when they come out, they come out on the Democrat side over and over again. And at some juncture, Republicans, and I think it's beginning to happen, are going to go, you know, we just don't care what you say. You're, you hate us. And that's what I, I do. I hear that from legislators. I hear it from voters. You hate us. Real quickly, though, Brian, uh, you mentioned Georgia, the number one state to do business and so forth. Um, as we see more businesses come in and Republicans try to diversify their base to include more folks who are coming into the state and starting up businesses, 
a lot of those new entrepreneurs are African-American. So how does this help with a business community that is not only diversifying in terms of its sort of C-suite view of things, but in terms of its actual composition? We're very proud of that. You know, I don't think there's any place and some rankings show that Atlanta is and Georgia are the best place for black women owned businesses. That's a sector that's thriving here better than anywhere else in the country. There's no place in not only America, but in the world where people of African descent do better economically than they do here, where there's more opportunity. Theron has mentioned his client, Microsoft, and then there's Google also creating a lot of jobs here in Midtown Atlanta. Why are they coming here? Because this is where you get a pool of highly skilled, college-educated black employees, which they want because they need to meet some of their diversity goals. So that you got to go to where the talent is, and it's here. And we're going to continue. But a lot of the executives and owners are minorities as well, as we saw in that note that appeared in the New York Times from the CEO's of either businesses that were black owned or African-American CEOs of businesses in general. And all of those people are Georgians who have a vote just like I do. And (laughs) they are open to have their views and they're open to expressing them. And what I'm committed to Dennis and, and Theron and all of our listeners out there is to having a civil conversation with all of them about how we work together to move Georgia uh, ahead and to continue to build wealth in all communities. And we're talking about the black community in Georgia, which has historically been left behind, has not had the same opportunities. We are doing better every day. And I think Republicans and Democrats alike share a goal in seeing that that tide continuing to rise. Darren. Yeah, real quick, I, I think Brian said it best. And, and I want to say this, listen, I, I, I think that one of the things we got to think about with these corporations, it does seem like they're coming down on the Democratic side. I slightly disagree with that. I think they're just coming down on the side of democracy, Dennis. I mean, you know, the right to vote is one of the most cherished fundamental rights to express yourself. You know, it's it's the fundamental um, you know, of the, it's the fundamentals of democracy. Right. And so to to restrict that from people. And I think that's what the corporations are saying. They understand they have some Republicans work for them. I mean, I'll say it, that's what people love this podcast. Uh, some of these corporation CEOs are probably Republicans. Um, maybe some of them have voted for Republicans in the past and, and, and probably in the future. And so I think if you just take the powder, the partisan politics out of it, you got to think about the workers. And I think Brian touched on that, right? If you start boycotting, and I know we haven't talked about this, but if you start boycotting corporations, which I have mixed emotions on, and you know, and I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm from the school of John Lewis, right? I believe in peaceful protests. I believe in, in boycotts. But if you start doing that, just keep in mind, don't neglect all the things that these corporations were doing before George Floyd was murdered with a knee on his neck while a white police officer, Amaya Aubrey, Richard Brooks. But also we got to hold them accountable to continue that throughout the this whole, this whole fight around voting rights. And so, again, I think we got to think about the workers, keep the pressure on the uh, corporations. But I agree totally with Brian. And matter of fact, we should probably do something on our podcast, Dennis, but we need to bring in some of these corporate leaders bring in some of these community leaders, bring in some Republicans and figure out a form where we can have a civil conversation. 
We will take a quick break here, and as we do, we'll note uh, that the legislature gave final passage to a bill to ban local governments from cutting police budgets by more than 5% in a single year. It also passed an overhaul, a complete overhaul, of the citizen's arrest provision, basically getting rid of the existing one. That and more will be part of what we can expect on our pop-up podcast special, The Gold Dome Scrambled with Emma Hurt, Emil Moffat, Lisa Rayum. We're going to take a break and come back with more on Governor Kemp's latest decision on COVID-19 and Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms' State of the City address, among other things. That and more when the Political Breakfast Special Edition continues. Stay right here. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And we are back on The Political Breakfast. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm Dennis O'Hare with Republican strategist Brian Robinson and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson. Gentlemen, we've got about a little over 20 minutes to hit a couple of things here. Uh, As he stays in quarantine after exposure to a person who tested positive for the coronavirus, Governor Brian Kemp this week lifted most of the remaining restrictions from his executive order of almost a year ago, including the one on large gatherings. And he also blocked authorities from enforcing the remaining restrictions, and this is effective April 8th. Now, this happened just days after Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the director of the Atlanta-based Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, said she was worried about a fourth wave of infections because of some of the new virus variants. And she said, if we can just hold on to some of these restrictions for a few more weeks, the rapid pace of vaccinations can give us protection that we need to prevent another surge. And she even said the new data show that people who are vaccinated to a large degree don't carry the virus to others, making it even more vital in her view anyway, that we hold the line until more of us get the shots. She specifically said she was going to talk to governors to urge them to wait just a bit on further reopening. Brian, Governor Kemp has repeatedly said that his approach has, in his own words, followed the science. Couldn't it be argued that the CDC's director or CDC director's information in her plea to the governors is the science and the risks of a fourth surge to our health and our economy are a lot bigger than the risks of holding on for another month or two? You know, Brian Kemp has been uh, battered over his decisions on COVID restrictions from the very beginning for a full year now. And I will say that in the scope of history, he's been proven to be right more often than wrong. I think our economy is in better shape today because of decisions that he made. Our death rates are different than California and New York, where they had much more stringent restrictions and they've had greater harm to their economies because of it. That said, I 
would be perfectly fine with listening to uh, the CDC director and extending these restrictions just a little bit longer. I know that now that the vaccines are open to everybody, people are uh, turning out in force to, to get them. I got my first one last week and was working this week on getting my second one and uh, getting my getting that scheduled. So it, it is happening, but I, I'll say part of what Kemp is facing down here is the reality that having restrictions that no one follows hurts the authority and uh, the standing of the state government, of governmental authority. And I think what you're seeing here is Georgians, rightly or wrongly, and probably wrongly, are just over it. And I, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing the change in the last couple of weeks. Spring has has come. The weather's a little better. People are not wearing masks in social gatherings. Uh, you know, you go to restaurants, people are much less likely to be wearing one as they're walking around. There's been a significant difference in the last couple of weeks. And I think to some degree, Kemp is just bowing to that reality. Darren. Yeah, you know, I think we're, we're not out of the woods yet, Dennis. Uh, while I do agree with Bryant that we, um, you know, the economy is doing better, but we can't forget the lives that were lost. Um, you know, 17,000 people have died in Georgia from COVID-19. Yeah, and if you include the ones that might likely be linked to COVID, another 2,000 plus or so, we're close to 20,000. Absolutely, Dennis. And so I'll just round it up and say, you know, roughly 20,000 people um, on the metrics that you just explained um, have died or could, could have died. Uh, we'll, we'll probably die. Uh, 59,000 people have been hospitalized. Um, 80, 850,000 people have tested positive in Georgia. And so, you know, there's always this sentiment that the governor had a very, very tough decision to make. The decision was, how do you preserve life, but also preserve the economy? And I think many people would say that, you know, and I'll say this about the governor. I know him personally. I think his heart was in the right place. He definitely wanted to preserve life. But he also really, really emphasized the importance of preserving the economy. Right. And so I think the challenge is, is that while, yes, people are going back to work. But I want to just give those statistics, those statistics to our listeners and our viewers, because I think that that to me crystallizes that we still need to take this deadly pandemic very seriously. Uh, so I think, you know, by lifting some of these restrictions is OK, but I agree with the CDC that we're just we got to be prepared for another wave. We're not out of the woods yet. And so at a time where, you know, folks are getting their, vac uh, their vaccine shots. I think the governor's doing what he can to try to get more people to take the shots. Uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms this week uh, went out publicly. He got her, got her shot. Uh, governor Kemp went down to South Georgia, I think, and, and got his shot as well. So they are trying to encourage Georgians to get vaccinated. But I just think that we got to understand that we still need to take this very seriously. We need to continue to mask up and really be responsible when we're out in crowds and, and really, quite frankly, amongst our family members as well. Theron, do you then agree with the implication in the long report this week from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which implied that the governor ignored even some recommendations for some pretty simple things to do that could have saved lives without hurting the economy. You know, I, I'll leave the governor's uh, team and, and the governor himself to respond to those allegations. Um, there were there was some strong, you know, evidence in there from the AJC. Uh, but again, I just I got to really kind of maybe, you know, say that I don't think that the governor would have ignored anything that was going to, you know, uh, really be life threatening. But it, it, it definitely this report in this article definitely highlighted some things. So Brian may be able to tell us what the governor said. Honestly, Dennis, I didn't really 
uh, paid too much attention to uh, his response or if he did give a response. But ultimately, we do feel like there were probably things that could have been done more. Uh, there were probably recommendations um, that he probably uh, accepted and put in place at the time and some that he did not. But ultimately, I mean, there are still roughly 20,000 deaths in this state uh, that I'm sure that he he understands and he sympathizes um, with these families that have lost loved ones. Brian. Let's not forget that amongst Republicans, you did have a significant portion of mask deniers, right? People who think this just isn't important. We shouldn't we shouldn't need to do that. And Kemp never fell into that trap. Throughout all of the pandemic, he has been a consistent voice for uh, wearing masks. He has driven that message over and over again. He's appeared with Dr. Toomey, the public health director, all around the state, making the the appeal to please be responsible, social distance, wear your mask, wash your hands, all of those things. He's done those things. And not all Republicans have used the responsible rhetoric and calls to action that he has. So I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. And when it comes to the story about how he responded to specific guidance from uh, the public health commissioner, it's not his job to be the public health commissioner. The commissioner is an advisor, and he's got to take advice from that one commissioner and balance it with the other needs of the state, including the need for businesses to survive, for families to have wages, for us to be able to get to restaurants and grocery stores. He had to balance a lot of these things out, and it is a navigation that I think he has excelled at. I give him high, high marks for how he has kept that balance. Does he make that a primary part, (laughs) to coin a phrase, does he make that a major part of his efforts to be reelected next year? I, I think that his record on the pandemic is one that is admirable. I think it's one that should have bipartisan support because we all have benefited from our economy doing better than some of the other states in the country. So, yes, I think it's a strong campaign platform for him uh, to run on. Theron, what do you think? I think I think the governor is going to be judged on not only how he handled uh, this deadly pandemic, But also he is going to be judged on how quickly was he able to communicate with the public uh, on administering the vaccines. Um, And so, you know, there was a part of it was a portion of the time where we were waiting on the vaccines to come and then uh, we didn't have enough. Now I think he has enough. Right. And so he's opened up multiple sites. And so I definitely think that uh, how did he handle the deadly pandemic? Uh, How did he get people vaccinated in the state of Georgia? And Dennis, we may have another wave, right? It could come before his election um, next year. It it could become before it could come back before his uh, Republican primary if he have a primary challenge. I don't want to say he does just yet, but if he were to have a challenge, I mean, I think that that would be something that a possible opponent could highlight. And so ultimately, he's going to talk about the economy. He's going to say, "Look at where we were. Look at where we are in other states. And had we not opened." When we open, we will be just like them. I do think he'll probably have some statistics that he can show. But ultimately, I think that some of his opponents on the Democratic side and possibly on the Republican side will also point out other factors uh, in in, um, reopening too soon. Time is short here. But speaking of elections, we've got one in the city of Atlanta just seven months away. And Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms gave her State of the City address remotely and virtually this week. 
Among other things, she said the city will hire 250 police officers in the next fiscal year, and there will eventually be a new training facility because the old one's in terrible shape and more community policing programs. Theron, the mayor's chief opponent so far, City Council President Felicia Moore, said those new police positions are already budgeted, so this isn't anything new. In addition, the city is 400 officers short right now. We still don't have a permanent police chief. And the airport CEO is leaving a job, which has seen a lot of turnover in recent years. So as we go into this election, how vulnerable is the mayor to criticism that she hasn't kept her eye on the critical nuts and bolts of her job? I would tell you this, Dennis. I think the mayor's State of the City address really was a very strong speech. Um, she talked about also committing uh, $3 million uh, to funding Operation Shield cameras, uh, which many police officers and public safety experts say that you need to have more cameras uh, in the city of Atlanta. You talked about the additional 250 officers. She also got a commitment from the philanthropic community, as you mentioned, to build a state-of-the-art public safety facility. And so I think we all agree that if you have more trained officers on the streets of Atlanta and retaining the good officers, the men and women who put their lives on the line every single day for us and making sure that we instill a culture, Dennis, that they feel supported and that they want to make sure that they understand um, you know, what their duties are and more, more importantly, they can be heard. I think that the mayor showed that the public safety is very important. Um, you know, as far as her opponent Talking about those officers who are already budgeted, I'm really not going to get into that because I think that Council President Felicia Moore does support us having more trained officers on the streets of Atlanta. And I do think that that's one of the many factors that will help us reduce crime. And then as far as the, the airport general manager leaving, Dennis, I want to get this in quickly. I want to thank John Selden for his leadership. Uh, he came in with an airport uh, that was thriving, that was the world's busiest and most efficient airport. But I really want to thank him for his leadership during this deadly pandemic at a time when we saw airports like Atlanta and all across the world really hard hit by the, the, the decline in travel. But I think, you know, you also going to you heard her focus on the issue around homelessness. She also talked about affordability and, and housing. And so there were so many things in the state of the city speech that is that I think made her well equipped to um, to really go into this reelection strong. She raised over $500,000 with President Biden doing the fundraising for her. And so I think she's definitely on the offense. She's got a tremendous amount of momentum. And then also she talked about too, the civil unrest that happened during this deadly pandemic and, when, and a lot of the challenges that she had running a city at a time where we had a deadly pandemic and we had all these peaceful protests and sometimes not peaceful protesting that turned into vandalism. Brian, how vulnerable do you think the mayor is to that critique that she took her eye off the ball? You know, one thing that I've said here a lot over the last three to four years is that uh, Mayor Bottoms has a lot of natural talent when it comes to doing the stuff that I do, right? I'm, I'm a communications director by trade. When I was a staffer, that's what I was to people like Keisha Lance Bottoms. And uh, I just, I, you know, I, I kind of cue in on those talents, the ability to drive a message, the ability to look commanding on camera. And she has that natural ability. And one thing that I've never really understood is why she uses it so rarely. This is one of those issues that just demanded her constant presence. And she has taken hits, such as not having anything to say when the when the young girl was shot outside of Phipps not too terribly long ago. Those things just 
create a reaction against her within the city. And I just don't understand why she doesn't use her innate ability to speak to this issue that is front of mind for Atlanta voters going into this election year. That is why opponents feel like they have a chance of unseating an incumbent, which almost never happens in Atlanta. People are reelected by acclamation here normally. So I think where there's been a dropping of the ball is communicating with Atlantans, telling them what a priority it is. It may be too little, too late now. Right. We've got about 20 seconds here, Theron, if you want to respond to that. No, I mean, look, I, I think Brian understands that I'm a you know staunch supporter of the mayor. Uh, he, he also understands he came to an anniversary party uh, that I had when I celebrated two years in my uh, firm that she said that we have a sort of big sister, little brother uh, relationship. So I've actually expressed to her some of the things that Brian talked about as far as continuing yeah. to communicate more. So I, I appreciate his comments. All right. And with that, we will remind everybody we're going to be right back with another live special edition of Political Breakfast Wednesday the 7th at 10 a.m. But that is it for this week's Political Breakfast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, communications consultant and former deputy chief of staff for Governor Nathan Deal. Theron Johnson is a Democratic strategist, a public affairs and government consultant, and most recently a senior advisor to the Biden-Georgia campaign. Guys, thank you so much. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks, Theron. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, Brian. And don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter. Brian is at Lord Tinsdale. That's T-I-N-S-D-A-L-E. Theron is at Theron Johnson. And I'm at Dennis, D-E-N-I-S-O-H-A-Y-E-R. And by the way, you can find out more about both of the live specials coming up, the Gold Dome Scramble and our special next week by going to wabe.org community. Our thanks to Kevin Rinker, John Haas, Robert Jones, and Lowell Brillante for their production assistance. And make sure to catch all of the other great podcasts from WABE. You can catch them either on your favorite podcast feed for free. You can also check them out on our webpage, wabe.org. Thank you so much for being with us. Have a great and a safe week. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. 